following presentation is a Bernanke and Krauss production. Here's Johnny. The city of Albuquerque, in the heart of New Mexico and the land of enchantment, lies a community home to a cinematic universe that's full of drama and suspense. In recent years, the once peaceful community has seen a surge in illegal activity, thanks to the work of a shady lawyer in the making. A chemistry teacher with a newfound identity. And the heart of a cartel seeping through the underbelly of the city. It is in this community where we have come to watch the character study of Better Call Saul unfold. With the gift to gab and a smile you can't forget, the evolution of James McGill, the beloved persona of Saul Goodman, attorney at law, has captured the interest of millions of fans across the world, making us hold our breath in suspense over the course of this perilous path. This is the story of not just one, but several characters, each on their own morally compelling journey. This character study is just one of the reasons we enjoy the cinematic world Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould have created, and we hope you do too. I'm Joseph Bernanke. And I'm Alex Krauss. And this is The Truth Is How You Look At It, a Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad podcast. Good evening, friends, and welcome to another installment of The Truth Is How You Look At It. We're covering the third episode of Better Call Saul today, entitled Nacho. I'm your host, Joseph Bernanke, and I'm joined once again by a good friend of mine. Alex Krauss. Always a pleasure to be here. He is my co-host for this series we just started up last month. We're recording in Winnipeg, Manitoba on a very chilly February evening. And uh, we're excited to bring you another episode um, to our series. Tonight we're looking at Nacho. It debuted February 16th, 2015, with the title named after our introduction to the new character in the previous episode of the series, Nacho Varga, played by the great Michael Mando. The episode is directed by Terry McDonough and written by Thomas Schnauz. So in this first scene, we start off this episode with a trip to the past, a flashback that sees a much younger Chuck McGill waiting in a cold prison meeting room. Now he's dressed formal as a lawyer, and he's clearly waiting for a client of his to join him in the room. That person, of course, you could guess, being a much younger James McGill, Jimmy. The first opening shot I found this very interesting, Alex. We see a couple sets of keys, a pen, and a large cell phone placed into a bin in the jail. I wanted to ask you right off the cuff here, do you think this is homage to Jimmy always having to ground himself as he goes into Chuck's house? That's a very good question. Uh, for sure, it has to be. It has to be a, a dark reflection of that, surely, in the past. I, I just found watching it for a third time now it's interesting you're seeing chuck this time emptying his contents i didn't think about it the first time i was watching it and i, I took a double take and i looked back and i was like wait a minute the way they shot this this reminds me of the mailbox um of course outside chuck mcgill's home in albuquerque yeah that's a very good pickup so jimmy has been thrown into jail in cicero illinois just you know suburb in chicago he's facing multiple charges and a sex offender status for a Chicago sunroof revenge prank. Now, we don't know at this point in the show what that is, and we'll wait to discuss that later on. Chuck is very reluctant to help Jimmy in this scene based on their shared past, and he notes it's been five years since they last spoke. He's gone, obviously, quite the distance to help bail his brother out of jail here, and Chuck has been working and living in Albuquerque for quite some time now. I figure this scene probably takes place in the early 1990s based on um, the blocky cell phone that Chuck has and, and when Better Call Saul is supposed to start in 2002. Also worth noting the hair on both of these guys. I don't know if they got two pays for the actors in this episode, but I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, Chuck offers Jimmy his defense um, counsel, and if Jimmy agrees to cease and desist all unethical behavior and move to Albuquerque. That kind of wraps up the first scene here. Uh, there's a bit to decompress here. Um, it seems a little bit simple on the surface, but the way they interact I find a little bit fascinating. Uh, Jimmy makes his grand entrance, as always, in, but uh, as he d talks with his brother Chuck, he tries to engage in some pleasantries, you know, 
doing his act, but Charles is immediately just shuts him down. He just rather exhaustingly doesn't engage with him, right? Jimmy's sort of saying, like, giving him compliments, like, hey, you're looking good, just like, and he's trying to get to the meat and potatoes of how do I get myself out of this, right? How do I get myself uh, not suffering these consequences? But Chuck isn't sort of getting to that point. He has a couple questions and concerns that take priority here. Uh, Jimmy wants, like I just said, trying to get out of here. But Chuck is thinking about how he got in here and his reaction when he was in here. So Chuck cuts straight to the chase by listing the property damages and assault charges that are least of his concern. and also brings up the fact that he has to contend with being labeled sex offender. Jimmy then tries to pull a very half-assed apology with Chuck, right? He uh, tries to say, like, look, I've been lousy brother. I haven't seen you for five years, whatever. Like, uh, I've been failing you, but also myself. He tries to pull the con artist that we know him a little bit for, but Chuck doesn't buy any of it. He asks him the question of, like, hey, you called up our mother, like, and you were crying on the phone, like, where is that at the moment? Where is that concern for the situation you're in? And Jimmy doesn't want to accept it, right? He's sort of like, hey, how can we get out of this? How can you pull your magic card here? And how can I not suffer the consequences? I think that's a really good point, Alex. We don't get too many mentions of Jimmy's and Chuck's parents throughout the series, so bringing in the mom is an interesting angle, um, even though we don't actually see her on screen. It, it, there's a definitely an interesting dynamic here in terms of power between Chuck and Jimmy. Jimmy is clearly helpless in this scene. He's really desperate for his brother's help. If you were to look on a bar graph in terms of the level of power between the two brothers, Chuck is basically holding all the cards here right now, and he's, you know, he's going to be a good brother for his younger brother, but their relationship definitely, I don't think, is in a good point uh, in this flashback, which is years before the uh, the show actually starts. Did you have any other thoughts on this opening flashback? No, that was well said. Um, Chuck was holding on the cards here, and Jimmy, doing his play, couldn't pitch uh, his want because Chuck was, as you said, holding on the cards. He couldn't get the angle that he wanted. And Chuck had a very simple request of he didn't want this to continue. He wanted him to face uh, the true consequences is the fact that what got him in here, the fact that if he doesn't uh, change his ways, he will be labeled a sex offender. And most importantly, when Jimmy said this could ruin his life, that's exactly what Chuck wanted to hear. I think it's interesting if you take a look at the line in the first episode, Jimmy ushers to Hamlin, Hamlin, and McGill... The line from uh, Network, from Ned Beatty, his quote, You will atone. I always kind of think about Jimmy in this light. It's like, you know, when are these past actions of his going to eventually catch up with him? They have in this opening flashback. He's in, he's in dire straits here. He needs help from his brother to bail him out. Chuck's a little bit reluctant, but ultimately he's going to. But to Alex's point, he wants his brother to reform. You know, and we'll see as we get through later through season one if Jimmy actually manages to do that. Here's Johnny. Hey, I knew you'd come. All right, you're safe for sore eyes. You're looking good. Only two things I know about Albuquerque. Bugs Bunny should have taken a left turn there and give me a hundred tries. I'll never be able to spell it. Forget the property damage and assault charges. You face being labeled a sex offender, Jimmy. If that happens, it'll follow you for the rest of your life. That is insane. That is a trumped up load of horse crap, Chuck. Come on. Is that what I tell the judge? Trumped up load of horse crap? Let's talk strategy. Okay, because I need you to work your magic and make this whole situation go poof. I haven't seen you in, what, five years? We barely hear from you. Now that you're in it up to your neck, you can't even call me yourself. You have mom call me. I know I'm a lousy brother. 
And if I was just a better person, I would not only stop letting you down, you know what? I'd stop letting me down. Guard? Wait. Chuck, wait, 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 wait. No, no, you can't leave me, no. If I, if I don't get out of this, my life is over. As long as you understand that. Yeah. Jimmy, if I do this, if, do not make a fool out of me. As we go into the second scene, we get a great shot of the camera placed in the cucumber water of the nail salon to start off the action. Jimmy, alone late in the evening, takes another look at the matchbook with the phone number Nacho Varga has left him with from the previous episode. Um, Jimmy calls Kim at what looks to be two in the morning, jokes that it's Ho Chi Minh time, a nice reference to Vietnam. <laughs> Jimmy is kind of uh, flirting with her a little bit. You know, she starts, they talk, uh, talk about the Kettleman case. Craig, the county official and treasurer, um, he's again accused of embezzling $1.6 million. Um, H, H&M has taken them on as their legal team. Jimmy, yet frustrated, he does hint to Kim the Kettleman family could be in danger, which quite alarms Kim, of course. And Jimmy, he clearly can't sleep based on this phone conversation and just all the things going on in his mind. He had a really difficult time in the previous episode with his adventure with the cartel. We see another shot from above in his tiny office looking down on him. Um, Jimmy takes an empty paper towel roll, an elastic band, and what looks to be some tissue paper, and he starts putting together a makeshift device that will change the sound of his voice. He decides to drive out to the country and finds a payphone, which is a repeated thing that we see throughout the whole series. Um, Jimmy's trying to call the Kettlemans, and we get a ridiculous voicemail from the whole family. It kind of sounds like a parody of the Brady Bunch. Aye, Team Kettlemans. Finally, on the third try, Jimmy gets through to the family. Uh, Betsy and Craig can't understand Jimmy's distorted voice, so he quickly says in his regular voice, there are people coming for your money, and hangs up. So meanwhile, Craig and Betsy, they go look outside their house, and down the street is a man, can't see in the shadows, keeping surveillance on the property from inside a van as the scene comes to a close. So Alex, let me ask you, what do you make of Jimmy's line while he's talking with Kim, um, I'm no hero? He's sort of justifying to himself, I would say, that he is no hero, that he doesn't have to act. But as we've seen in the previous episode when he stepped in to save the two brothers, he has this moral compass that doesn't allow him to just let people be whacked willy-nilly. He, and he does step in, I'll bet, in a third-party manner. This is the first time in the series we kind of get a taste of Jimmy flirting with Kim what, what do you think their relationship is at this point is it just they're just kind of friends we don't really get a whole lot to go on but obviously he's not afraid to talk to her if he's phoning her at yeah. two in the morning <laughs> uh upon first uh, watch like I was a bit I don't want to say confused but I wasn't given too much light as into uh the relationship clearly they were close as you hinted at with uh some of their non-PG-13 talk uh, previously, but they clearly aren't something further either, so we'll see as the show further develops. What do you make of Jimmy's decision to warn the Kettlemans on the phone? Do you think this comes from a place of guilt, uh, prior greed with wanting to take them on as clients? Where, Where do you think that comes from? I think it comes from the guilt that he used them in his explanation with Tuco and Nacho in the previous episode, right? He th- put them in that danger that he was talking about. Unwittingly, of course, but it, his explanation needed to get out of the situation from last episode in the middle of the desert. So he feels that moral obligation to step in. Did you have any other thoughts on this opening scene in the present time? Did you... uh have any thoughts when he was assembling that gizmo of what it could be at the time? I had no idea, and funny enough that you should ask, when I was re-watching this episode this week, I couldn't remember what he was building. 
I know that he was going to be warning the Kettlemans at some point, but I thought he just kind of went to the payphone and was just going to try and muffle his voice using his hands, basically. So I had a good laugh when I saw him do that. Yeah. I just find it funny that he unrolls the entire amount of uh, paper towels just for <laughs> the last <laughs> component and then doesn't end up using it in the end anyways. Hello? Hey, it's me. Jesus, what time is it? Clock says two, but I think that might be Ho Chi Minh's time zone. No, I'm not talking dirty to you. What? Wait, you think that's the only reason I would call you at this time of night? I mean, just give me give me a little bit of credit, okay? And you're not talking dirty to me either. Okay, bye. I knew it. A joking, just just joking, have fun with you. I am calling you tonight with quality. PG phone conversation. PG-13 at worst. Uh-huh. Hand to God. Somebody might get some bad, bad ideas. You know, if Kettleman isn't careful with that money, I mean, his whole family could be in danger. What do you mean, danger? I'm no hero. Coming for your money, bye. Um, so as we go into the third scene here of this episode, uh, this is where things start to get a little bit interesting. I'd say Jimmy is negotiating with uh, opposing counsel. Bill Oakley is the character's name. He's the district attorney. We see him quite a bit throughout the series, and we have already um, in our podcast here. Um, they're talking about a case in the county court washroom again. And Jimmy starts to get frustrated with Oakley over him not really paying attention to each of his different clients. We see guys like Jimmy and Bill both have a ton of clients that they have to deal with over the course of many days on the job. It's a lot of the same routine as we saw in the second episode with that great montage. Um, and so Jimmy, he makes a deal with him over one of the cases and he gets him to verbally say it out loud in the washroom Um Yes, I will take the deal for my client. Not before throwing in some uh, golden quotes there, I must say. Some hilarious lines Jimmy says in his uh, rant to Bill there. Uh, I'm busting the nut here for 700 a throw, inhaling your BM straight from Satan's bunghole. And you can't tell me one def- uh, can't tell one defendant from another? Like <laughs> The humor on this show is great, man. The, yeah. that, was, that was really well put. Um, Jimmy's clearly talking business here, and he's not kidding around. Yeah. Um. It's funny because we'll see this character, Bill, uh, further along the series, and he is a very minor character, but he it's funny how this one scene adds a little bit dynamic later on, the fact that this is a moment when he stands up to Bill, and their relationship as uh, prosecution and defense changes slightly in the power. Almost what you're talking about with the brothers before. Here, it goes almost completely into Jimmy's favor because Bill just caves at the first sign of any opposition. He understood that he messed up and like would almost subject to any um, uh, lessening of the sentence. That's a really good point. Um, so Jimmy receives a phone call from Kim uh, so and warning about there's a situation going on at the cattleman's house. Uh, so Jimmy heads outside and he has another classic argument with Mike about parking validation and stickers. 
Mike, meanwhile, is intently looking at a crossword, and he doesn't see Jimmy reach over and push the button, which lifts the bar, and as Jimmy drives away, he has the great line, Screw you, geezer! (laughs) (laughs) So Jimmy drives to a crime scene at the Kettleman's front door. We see several police cars on site, and Kim, and then later Howard, uh, watches as Jimmy pulls up. Howard immediately tells him, There's no business here for you. Um, but Jimmy, he's smart enough. He figures there was a home invasion. Uh, Howard tells Jimmy the house was ransacked. Uh, the front door was found open by a neighbor. And the family, with the Kettleman's, uh, is missing. It was pretty windy when they filmed this scene. I actually found that kind of interesting. There's a little slight pick up there. And Kim talks to Jimmy, and she can't believe the coincidence between Jimmy's warning and suddenly the family goes missing. Uh, she is clearly distressed in this scene. So Jimmy leaves, because there's really nothing for him to do there, and he finds another payphone in a different neighborhood. He dials the number for Nacho on the packet of matches, and Jimmy starts to panic as he can't get through. He calls him again and again and again, leaving messages through the payphone. I didn't actually realize you could do that uh, as a first-time viewer to the show um, when this was out a few years ago. Finally, the phone rings uh, minutes later, Jimmy answers, but there's nobody there. Um, Kind of spooky. (laughs) Uh, Jimmy looks around to see if anyone's looking at him from a distance outside, but doesn't see anybody. Uh, Now, before we go further in this scene, I really like the camera choice and kind of showing Jimmy's very small. They they put these payphones up beside a large, maybe warehouse, storage facility. I don't really know what it is. But, uh, Alex, what did you make of sort of the franticness here in Jimmy he can't get through and then he kind of gives up but he kind of lingers around a little bit are they kind of suggesting that something's going to happen here or because I really wasn't expecting what was going to happen to him next to happen like you figure he'll get in his car and he'll drive away yeah uh he couldn't leave well enough alone before he had to leave a whole bunch of messages uh, of course and with this scene it feels a little ominous for sure and We'll see in a second that the music starts to pick up. But, yeah, it left a little bit of suspense for sure, I would say. So as the music picks up to Alex's point, Jimmy goes back to his car and tries starting it. I love the grimace on his face when he can't start it. (laughs) Bob Odenkirk's a master of facial expressions. Um, And to his fear, he sees two men approaching his old Suzuki from both directions, quite far in the distance, and they're closing in as he looks through the rearview mirror. Jimmy gets out of the car and he decides, I'm going to make a run for it. The two men chase behind. We don't know who they are. You're kind of wondering if they're part of the cartel at this point. Um, It leaves that presumption there for sure. It it does. That was was my thought the first time we saw this. Um, And then, so he's running down an alley and shortly behind, a police car cuts them off. Jimmy has a great line, I've got bad knees. (laughs) That's something I picked up too. Yeah. It's, It's a reference to... Jimmy being out in the desert, being kidnapped by the cartel, and then there's a great homage to that later when we discuss Breaking Bad, when Walt and Jesse kidnap Saul. Um, But anyway, so uh, Jimmy gets temporarily arrested. Um, The cops talk to him, and they're saying, well, look, uh, aren't you associated with Nacho Varga? And he tells them, no, I'm the lawyer. So they realize he's not an accomplice in what's been potentially going on at the Kettleman's house. Jimmy has an intense discussion with Nacho in jail, um, with Nacho, you know, having a right to be angry at him for thinking this is a setup, you know. The actor does such a good job when Jimmy's ranting on. Those those facial expressions from Michael Mando's They speak volumes, for sure. They do. They definitely do. Um, So Nacho, you know, he only told Jimmy about his plan to rob the family. So he admits he was casing the joint for two nights, but he didn't set foot in the house. The blood and the, uh, the police found in the back of his van was from the skateboarder scuffle with Jimmy uh, out in the desert from the previous episode, Miho. Um, and so Nacho ends this scene by telling Jimmy, look, if you don't get me out of jail today, you're a dead man. There's always a great deal of suspense on this show, even in some of the lighter episodes in terms of what actually happens in the plot. Um, so now, Alex, we know how this episode plays out as we've watched it before. But for our audience who may be new to this series, how is Jimmy handling this situation? It, it just seems to be snowballing in the wrong way 
for everybody. He's pissed off HH&M. He's pissed off Nacho. Um, how has he handled this so far? He handles it in classic Jimmy way, I suppose, in the fact that as soon as he gets into the cell, he's immediately talking. <laughs> it's the one thing that he does best, right? And it's one thing that they iterate throughout the show. It's just his charisma and his way of talking in or out of a situation at any point. And here with Nacho, he tries to, uh, to ask Nacho to, okay, like, where can we find the family? He tries to uh, get, like, talk about plea bargain, options, how he's on his side, just like a, whatever it would take to try and find the Kettlemans. While Nacho is sitting there, visibly more and more upset, just pissed off, super annoyed, doesn't say a word. Jimmy talks for a good, like, minute and a half before Nacho says his first line of, you miserable piece of shit. <laughs> I, every line Nacho delivers is just hilarious. In my opinion, he's sort of a little bit the opposite to Jimmy. He's not very expressive, but that's not to say that he isn't capably uh, dangerous and influensive as well. Those are some really good points, Alex. Uh, did you have any other thoughts on this shorter scene um, before we continue on? I just want to know your reaction of, did you think that Nacho was involved the first time you were watching? Ooh, that's a really good question. I did think Nacho was involved to an extent, um, but it, it just seemed like... It, it seemed like something was off with the family. It, it You know, Jimmy warned them, uh, and he, you know, he kind of gives them the heads up, uh, you know. He gives them enough time, is what I'm trying to say, for them to basically skedaddle. And mm. I don't want to go into that whole situation yet as we'll talk coming up here in this episode. But Nacho is smart. He's, to your point, we were just saying he's a little bit more silent charismatically. But he's a thinker, you know. He helped de-escalate that situation out in the desert in the previous episode with Tuco. Um, so... He is going to be a bit more methodical. He's not just going to go in guns a-blazing, kill a family, or get rid of them, and take the money. I, I did think Nacho was involved to an extent the first time I watched this, but I wasn't fully sold on his involvement. Um, yeah, not to the extent that the entire family's missing. He left his van with himself in front of the uh, residence and destroyed half the place. Yeah, that doesn't... Uh, that's not really Nacho's way of doing things. Okay, go. Start over. I am not starting over. I'm busting my nut here every day for 700 a throw, inhaling your BM, which is straight from Satan's bunghole, and you can't tell one defendant from another? Say it. Say the words. I accept the deal. Yeah, I, I accept. I accept the deal. Make me walk back and get the stickers. I will walk back and get the stickers. I'm not making you do anything. Those are the rules. Hey, whatever helps you sleep at night. Screw you, geezer! Nacho, leave it. God. Yes, I'm up. <clears throat> this is the party you spoke to the other day. Uh, and I sincerely want to help you de-escalate your situation. Hello? Hello? Nacho? Nacho? setting me up. You get me out of here today. We are dead men. So as we go into the fourth scene here, Jimmy is approached by Kim and two members of what I believe either are they are they the FBI or are they No, they're cops, I believe. They're just regular they're Albuquerque just, cops. Yes. Okay. 
They do mention the FBI. They do, and he was talking about not getting them involved yeah. to Nacho. That's a good point. So they're still in the uh, they're in the courthouse um, with the jail, and he, you know, Jimmy's trying to say, "Look, not my client, Nacho. He's innocent." This isn't really going anywhere in conversation. So Kim suggests, why don't we bring Jimmy to the scene of the crime at the cattleman's house? So Jimmy, now on site at the house, he's kind of walking around like a private investigator here. He surveys every room, and as they go upstairs to the children's bedroom, almost like a detective, as I said, he makes an observation that the cattleman's daughter's doll is missing, oddly enough, and suggests maybe the family kidnapped themselves. Um, you know, the cops don't really want to hear that. They thought, well, yeah, it's certainly possible, but, uh, well, you know... Uh, they don't buy it for a second, honestly. No. Uh, so Jimmy and Kim head outside to the backyard, um, and Jimmy tells her that he warned the Kettlemans from the night before their disappearance. He owns up to it. Kim is frustrated and is not really sure how Jimmy can get himself out of this mess, uh, and he tells her, look, you know, my client, Nacho, he's dangerous. He doesn't tell her that he's in the cartel, uh, but nonetheless, he. It's interesting uh, knowing about how he shapes the truth later on in the season uh, seasons. But here, Jimmy does straight up say like he is a danger to other people and to him uh, to Jimmy himself. And the fact that if he doesn't get him off, if the cops continue to pry into his business there will be consequences which i believe concerns kim too because kim yeah even if they're platonic right now kim does care about jimmy um so jimmy leaves the scene he returns to the parking lot of the uh courthouse and gets into another argument with mike who refuses his entry to the courts mike hilariously pushes jimmy to the ground <laughs> and could break his arm if he wanted to Aye. after jimmy parked his vehicle in the middle of the entrance and as he pins him down, that concludes this scene. So, I mean, hey, kudos to Jimmy. He seems to be the man for all seasons here as he does a, you know, I think he does a pretty good job investigating the Kettleman's house. What did you make of his important observation in the children's bedroom? I think it was almost a key uh, aspect, just like in any Sherlock Holmes or detective thing, there's sometimes a convenience uh, uh, in in the investigation and leads to a breakthrough, right? But here, he does make an incredibly good point in the fact that uh, they see in the photo that she's carrying the uh, teddy bear, or sorry, the doll, and they see in like all, all the uh, things hinting towards it that there would be a doll here, but there's just conveniently one missing. If someone's in here searching for money, why would they take it? Why would it not be anywhere in the room? So he does raise very legitimate questions. Did you have any other points on Jimmy investigating the house or his interaction with Mike? It's always funny uh, that he runs into Mike at the worst times for him. Like uh, whenever he's in a rush, it seems that he runs into Mike, the brick wall, who refuses to budge at any point. But it's just some extra comedy there, I find, their inter interactions. In what might be the best scene of the episode, uh, it's the final one here as we uh, move along in, in our discussion. The fifth scene begins with two cops uh, insisting to Mike to press charges on Jimmy to lock him up for assault. Mike refuses to go along with this and he walks away to the cops' frustration. They're getting tired of Jimmy's antics over the whole Kettleman case. Um, so now in the stairwell to the county court, I really like this interaction between the two Mike and Jimmy have their first long, serious conversation on the show, and they discuss the Kettleman case. And Mike believes Jimmy's argument to Jimmy's amazement that somebody finally believes his story, you know. And then Mike, in turn, offers an anecdote from his time working as a detective in Philadelphia. This is the first time we hear this detail, um, which is important for later on in season one. And Mike's anecdote is based on a story from the Super Bowl between the Dallas Cowboys and the Pittsburgh Steelers in which a bookie tried to run away with $6 million. Turns out the guy was hiding just down the street in another house in his neighborhood. And Mike, in this discussion, has a great line to end things. Nobody wants to leave home. Okay. So Jimmy takes this into consideration and he returns to the Kettleman house. 
he sees the back gate of the property and decides to investigate a path what looks to be leading away from the house out into the desert and the forest nearby. There's a great song choice here. The song is Find Out What's Happening by the old country music star Bobby Bear, 1960s. Um, again, here's another song where the lyrics kind of loosely resemble what Jimmy is seeking to find in the Kettleman's. If you don't find out what's happening, you're going to find out that I'm gone. I took those lyrics from the song there. So after hours of walking down through the brush and into a large forest, Jimmy hears some faint singing of the children's rhyme, Bingo was his name-o. Uh, he follows the sound of their voices and finds the Kettleman's hiding in a tent. Jimmy calls Kim and tells her that he's found their clients. And uh, Jimmy, Idiot clients. That's a good point. And Jimmy approaches the tent with the classic callback to the movie The Shining and says, Here's Johnny. <laughs> and as he opens the tent door, he, uh, he insists to the Kettleman's, Look, you guys are coming back with me to the city. Jimmy and Betsy, um, Craig's wife, they have a tug of war over a large duffel bag. Uh, they're both pulling on it, and the bag splits open as stacks of bills fly everywhere. Great camera shot there, proving Craig did embezzle the $1.6 million as the episode draws to a close. Where's the doll? Where's the what? Uh, got little shoes, a bunch of clothes, a table and chairs, a hairbrush, but where's the doll that goes with all this stuff? Doll is gone, girl is gone, which means doll and girl are most likely together, which means... I have no idea what that means. Which means the kid wasn't dragged out of the house, ipso facto. Wait, what are you saying? Maybe the Kettleman's kidnapped themselves. I suggest you find parking somewhere else. Somewhere else? As in where somewhere else? Not my concern. Guys, I'm the definition of a broken record on this one. Nacho is Nacho Man. Comprendo? Nobody took the Kettleman's. The Kettleman's took themselves. You're not gonna have a heart inside your body in about five seconds. Okay, don't tell me, all right? I already know why you did it. Yeah? Why is that? Because you believe me. All right, I believe you. I knew it! I knew it! Finally, someone believes me! <laughs> How'd they get out of the country? They didn't. Odds are they didn't get out of the neighborhood. His bookie disappeared after the Super Bowl. Cowboys, Steelers, took $6 million in bets and skipped town when things didn't go his way. Now everybody thought he was on the beach in the Bahamas or dead in the Jersey Pine Barrens. Wasn't the case. He was two doors down from where he lived in a foreclosed house, hid there for six months without anyone suspecting. It's human nature to want to stay close to home. If this Kettleman figured out how to do it, that's what he did. Nobody wants to leave home. episode anything stand out for you in particular I, I i loved mike and jimmy's interaction at the end um i've i've found i'll go ahead and say this for viewers of that have seen both shows i think better call Saul really works well when mike and jimmy have work that they need to do together it doesn't come often in in uh, the series we'll see later on in season one they do end up working together and then later throughout the show uh, they have some key discussions. They always uh, have an interesting dynamic when both characters are on screen. They do. Mike is much more reserved. He's a thinking man, and he's very tactical. Jimmy, as we see, he's very charismatic. He's open to talking about what's on his mind. Um, so they play off each other really well, and kudos to Jonathan Banks and Bob Odenkirk for playing those characters really, really well. Um, that that was my probably standalone moment in the in the show. I did like Jimmy's phone call with Kim in the beginning. Um, it's going to kind of build where their relationship goes on the uh, on the first uh, prequel series here. Mm. Um, 
and and yeah the the final scene here which i'll ask you about i i just love the ridiculousness of the cattlemen's being out in the woods of course the idea of them kidnapping themselves um it's it's almost too good to be true but this family as we'll see they're not the smartest tools in the shed and no i think that comes across kind of beautifully as they frame this uh kidnapping of themselves and what do they end up doing they're out camping in the middle of the woods uh singing uh bingo so what what do you make of jimmy's progression as a character here i kind of mentioned earlier how he's kind of playing the role of a private investigator through most of this episode what are your thoughts on his ability to find the family out in the woods? Because, like, yes, there was a trail for him to f- follow, but it wouldn't have been the easiest to just go and find these people. You can see that he's out there walking for a few hours. Yeah. What, what do you make of that uh, mark on a, on a character there? Uh, I don't think, honestly, as much as compared to some of the other scenes. Like, here, he's... Uh, following his intuition and the one that's confirmed by Mike, right? And on that hunch, that suspicion, he goes out and proves himself correct that despite what everyone else is saying, that his theory was sound. So I think that's to the extent. I I love how, yes, this is a show about James McGill as the protagonist. uh, But again, here's another moment where Jimmy's doing all the dirty work. Yes, he sometimes puts himself in those situations, but H H and M, what are they really doing to help? It's Jimmy's got to do it all. That's a really good point, actually. He does go above and beyond in sometimes not the same side of the law, right? More questionable fields, but he is one that isn't afraid to get his hands dirty, and does put in legwork. You'll see further down the line as well. Uh, sort of to add a little bit onto that question, I suppose. What do you think of? jimmy is a character compared to this flashback earlier in the episode do you think that's the same character when you see him in the prison it's not the same character um jimmy has matured to a, a good extent um jimmy knows where, where he is now in 2002 in the beginning of better call salt yes he had to grow up considerably um he he's a lawyer now and he wants to stay one um and he wants to build his brand. You know, he wants to build who he is, his client base, etc. Yes, to Alex's point from just about a minute ago, he does have some tactics that skirt both sides of the law. But he's not a horrible human being at this point in the series. He's a pretty, he's a good guy. Um, and we'll see how things change down the line. What we think of him, arguably after you know a couple seasons and all that. Um, he's not entirely the slipping jimmy he was as he was when he used to live in chicago uh cicero i do think there has been some character development there and and i think these flashbacks are important in showing how these people were and we're going to get more of them in season one for sure i think that's a great point in the fact that he's matured and you can clearly see it in his intentions that you're talking about right instead of just being slipping jimmy he's here to further his brand as you said and uh to sort of establish himself as a legitimate character. And that sort of ties into the next question I had. In his talk with Bill here, he seems quite fed up at the discussion of he's when he's attempting to be legitimate and he says that he only earns like 700 uh, a blow, That's if I remember correctly here. And he's super frustrated at the fact that he's just not earning as much as he's putting in like he's clearly having to put up with stuff that's not on uh like uh, uh, typical things that a lawyer has to put up with someone at h&m wouldn't have to be inhaling someone uh, the prosecutor's fumes trying to negotiate with them right he's having to put up with all these things that uh just make his life miserable as a result and I just wanted to ask you, uh, do you think this is sort of an insight into his skirting back into fields that aren't as uh, legitimate? So is this a regression slowly back into Slipping Jimmy? A slight callback to it, would you say? It it definitely is. Um, Jimmy is going to do what he can to get ahead. 
in life. You know, he will cut corners. Um, he wants to try and get through as many of these cases as he can to put bucks in his wallet, you know. Um, but also, but he needs the money. It, it's not like he's the kind of character who's going off and just buying extravagant things. No, this is a guy who needs to make a living. Um, As clearly seen with his uh, vehicle, not even starting in the later scene. Yeah, uh, the grimace on his face, etc. You know, um, yeah, I think kind of what we were just talking about a little bit between uh, the flashback and now, you know, we're going to see Jimmy's progression as a character ramp up uh, tremendously. Um, and there are going to be times where Jimmy is going to go back to being a, kind of, a, you know, a scumbag that he was, you know, in the beginning. Um, and these, you know, yeah, these McDonald's type lawyer cases that he takes, you know, if we, I'm, I'm making a notion between the fast food and I don't know, like the primo law cases that, you know, lawyers will get kind of my analogy there. Um, Jimmy's stuck at the bottom right now and he's, he's trying to work his way to the top. For sure. Yeah. I agree with that sentiment that it's definitely not the same slipping Jimmy as before, but it is sort of credence to it. Like he has to, he does want to get ahead in the fact that doing it the same way as uh, he's told by other people, it's just not getting him to the place that he wants to be. And I had another question for you in regards to Mike. He had an interesting reaction to the two cops when they touched his shoulder. Do you think perhaps this uh, may be um, hinting at something that we learn further on? I think, I think, yeah, it is setting up the discussion that, you know, okay, Mike was a cop in Philadelphia um, and things did not end well. Uh, you know, mm. Mike is a very gruff man, very cold man. And I think even the idea of, you know, the guy putting his arm on his shoulder it's kind of just Mike is he's very cold to the outside world right now we're going to see that Mike has a family which he cares about deeply but everybody else can basically go and bug off you know it's, yeah he, he's cold to reception like that uh and, you know it's just and and we'll see why mm. later on without getting into spoilers if if people haven't seen the show before I think uh two cops that are doing illegitimate things sort of resonates too closely to him for sure what do you what do you make of that conversation that jimmy and mike have in the stairwell do you think this starts to build a, a brief sort of respect between the two men oh just, even just a little bit you know for sure uh the way that jimmy says i can't believe i refuse to believe you have a heart inside your body it's <laughs> sort of like he's seeing him differently for the first time he's not seeing him just as the troll underneath a bridge that there might actually be something more and <laughs> immediately he wants to find out right he runs after him into the stairwell because he needs to know okay this is like a complete 180 of what he expected from this character why the hell did he help him out there i find that line shortly after when micah responds you're not going to have a heart in five seconds always hilarious the humor was on point this episode i must say some of the writing is always great, but um, I find with this episode overall, it is a lot slower compared to the prior episode. We had a huge event going on in the second episode with in the desert and afterwards, but here it sort of slows down. Now, Better Call Saul isn't a crazy fast show in regards to plot and development. It does take its time. It is a bit of slow burner sometimes but it does have its payoff moments as well and i think this is an example of some of the slower burn episodes i think you, i think you hit the hammer on the nail there alex and we're going to see that going forward for the next few episodes and kind of already in the first season we get a big rising action in the first two episodes it's kind of a two-parter as we've talked about and then things start to come down a little bit uh and there is some tension of course with the kettleman's why has the family disappeared? Okay, we find out they, you know, they kidnapped themselves, which was pretty stupid, uh, which we'll be talking about as this episode too kind of ends on a cliffhanger, uh, with Jimmy saying, "Look, you got to come back with me back to your house, so we can straighten this out." To to reiterate this idea, this episode is a bit of a slower burn, but it's still really important in terms of character development. There's a lot of humor in this episode, as we mentioned, between Jimmy and Kim, Mike and Jimmy. 
Um, even the exchange between Jimmy and Nacho in the jail cells, Jimmy's coming off as this big like, wah, 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 I'm going to say this and that, and Nacho's looking at him with the death stare, you know, and yeah. Michael Mandel plays that really well. Um, yeah, it's it's a good episode. I liked it. it. It's not my favorite of the season, but I, I did like it quite a bit. Yeah. No, for sure. And I think you sort of talked about slightly earlier uh, with the characters when they start to engage with each other. You gave the example of this is the first time with Mike and Jimmy uh, interacting with each other. You'll find as the series goes on and sort of structurally, we have less of pure plot episodes and more leaning towards different characters being involved in the same uh, episode, all having their plots go along. So it's a little bit more engaging as the, in my opinion, as the seasons go along because it's not just Jimmy's plot, if that makes sense. So there's more engagement, more dynamic uh, interactions as a result. The series starts to diverge into to what Alex was just saying. We've got Jimmy's story. We've got things happening with Kim. We've got a backstory with Mike that's going to be around the corner. Uh, and then even Nacho Varga down the line. We don't get a whole lot of Nacho in this uh, episode, even though that's what the episode is titled. Um, you know, Nacho really only has that scene in the jail. Um you know, which uh, is important because it's it's all connected. It's you know, this isn't a standalone cop series or cop crime procedural drama where you know things happen in one episode and then they won't happen again. Everything is important in this universe that Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould have created for both Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. So yeah, um, I'm I'm really excited to keep bringing you guys this series. This was Nacho, the third episode of Better Call Saul. And our third episode of The Truth is How You Look At It. For the week of February 6th, I'm your host, Joseph Bernanke, and I'm really happy to have a good friend of mine, Alex Krauss, here on the series. Uh, you guys all take care, and thank you for listening. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. It's up on YouTube, and we're thrilled to be doing this. So, Hi, we'll see you next episode. You guys have a great week, and take care. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast. Our show's theme is The House, recorded by Adrian Berenger, and music featured in tonight's show was Dawn, recorded by Enrico De Lucia, The Choice by Emmanuel D'Antoni, In the Shadows by Bruce Zimmerman, and Excavate by Marshall Usinger. Hope everyone enjoyed Super Bowl 55. Congrats to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on their second Super Bowl title. If you're new to Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, now is a great time to check out these television series. Until next week, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll catch you all on the flip side. The Truth is How You Look at It is a Bernanke and Krauss production.